Today we celebrate an event which, according to Jesus, was the ultimate sign to validate his greatness. Let me show you what I mean as we begin our time in the Word this morning in Matthew chapter 12, the very first book of the New Testament, the first gospel record, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. We read in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus said, Everything Jesus stood for depended on one thing, his resurrection from the dead. Why is that the case? What did the resurrection prove? At least four things. Number one, it proves Jesus willingly gave up his life. Number two, it proves Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Number three, it proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And number four, it proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Let's briefly consider each of these individually by way of introduction into the message this morning. Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus willingly gave up his life. Turn from the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. John chapter 10. And notice what Jesus said on one occasion as he was interacting with his adversaries. <clears throat> John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. You see, the resurrection was proof that Jesus had willingly given up his life. Think about it. If he had remained in the grave, then that would have seemed as if his enemies had been victorious. But he burst forth from the grave as proof that he was not the, the victim. He was the victor. He was the conqueror and not the conquered. You know, many people have laid down their lives for some cause through the centuries. But no one has ever been able to take up his life again after laying it down. Jesus did. I believe Jesus spoke these words directly against the Jewish leaders who were standing around this day. You see, he knew that in just a few months from the time he spoke these words, they would have him murdered. 
So he wanted to make sure that they knew that he was in sovereign control even of his own death. No one would take his life from him. He would willingly lay it down. In other words, he wasn't a helpless victim of his enemies. He was the king. And they were simply the pawns on the chessboard of God's plan. In fact, verse 17 indicates that Jesus placed the emphasis on his own sovereign control by saying literally, I myself laid down my life. So Jesus spoke these words as a rebuke to his enemies who thought they were above him. But Jesus also spoke these words for his disciples. He wanted to make sure that they knew he wasn't a victim. Remember, the death of Jesus was an overwhelming blow to the disciples. They never saw it coming. So Jesus wanted to make sure that his group of men, uh, that this group was not completely devastated by that event. He wanted to prepare them in advance. So he speaks these words for their benefit. No one killed Jesus against his will. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that he might take it up again in the resurrection, and that proved he willingly gave up his life. Secondly, number two, the resurrection proves Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. Turn over just one chapter to John 11, the very next chapter. And verse 23 tells us about a conversation Jesus had with Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died, and that's why Jesus was present for this occasion. To utter these words here in John 11, verse 23 Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus proved that on this very day by raising Lazarus from the dead, but even more so when he was raised from the dead. You see, if Jesus could do nothing about death, think about this. If Jesus could do nothing about death, then everything else Jesus said would be worthless. Utterly worthless. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is man's last enemy. But Jesus conquered death. That's why he could say here in John 11, He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Though he dies physically, he will live spiritually and eternally. The resurrection of Jesus proved that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Thirdly, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God Turn over past the next book of your Bible, Acts, to the following book, the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And notice Paul's words in verse 3. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now notice verse 4. And declared proven to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection validated Jesus' claims to deity. Throughout His ministry, Jesus continually taught that He was God. He claimed to be God. 
Now, there are many people today who would say that Jesus never claimed to be God, especially those involved in cults. One of the classic approaches of those in cults is to say, you can't show me one statement where Jesus ever said, I am God. And you know what? They're right. There's no statement where Jesus ever said, I am God. But he said it in so many ways, so many different ways, that the people around him, the Jews of the first century, continually tried to kill him for those claims. They knew exactly what he was claiming, claiming to be God in human flesh. And they considered that blasphemy and continually, regularly tried to kill him. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And here in verse 4, Paul says, his resurrection proves that claim, validates that claim. And then fourthly, the resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Turn over just a few pages to the right to chapter 4 of Romans, the very last verse in Romans 4. It says of Jesus, he was delivered up because of our offenses, that is, died for our sins because of our offenses. Now watch this, and was raised up because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection was proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Now think about this. If God had not accepted Jesus' sacrifice as our substitute, then you and I would have to pay for our own sin eternally. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Thus, the wages, what we would have to pay if Jesus hadn't paid, would eternal death. We would have to spend, let me say it this way, we'd have to spend eternity in hell paying for our sin. But the resurrection was proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Now these are great theological truths connected to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and they are foundational. But it is very easy for us to stop right there when we contemplate the resurrection. What I mean is, it is very easy for us to fail to personalize the resurrection. But we dare not do that. It is critical, it is crucial that we enter into the emotion and the significance of that monumental event in history. So that's what I want to help us do this morning. This morning we're going to look at the resurrection through personal eyes. Not merely through theological categories as important as they are. To help us do that, we're going to consider the impact of the resurrection on one life in the first century, century, on the life of a man named Simon Peter. Simon was actually the name his parents had given him at birth. He was a fisherman by trade along with his brother Andrew. We know that he was married because in Luke 4, uh, Jesus healed, quote, his wife's mother, Peter's wife's mother. Also, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says that Peter took his wife with him on his missionary journeys. So Peter was married. We know also from the Gospels that Simon had a problem being consistent. He vacillated and shifted. So to help remedy that problem, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. 
because the Greek term petros, Peter, means stone. By the way, Cephas is the Aramaic name for stone. So if you look at Simon's name, or Peter's name, it can really be confusing sometimes because he is called by three different names in the Bible. Cephas, Simon, and Peter. The best way to understand it, to keep it straight, is to realize that Cephas and Peter are the same name. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek. Simon is the name his parents gave to him at birth. Jesus changed his name to Cephas, Aramaic, or Peter, Greek. And this forced Peter to think about how the Lord wanted him to be. The Lord wanted him to be solid as a rock, firm and consistent, not shifting. It's kind of humorous to think about the fact that you can outline Peter's life, his progression in life, just by his name. First he was Simon, and then in time he grew to be Simon Peter, and eventually he became what the Lord wanted him to be, Peter. Solid. Firm. How did it all begin for Peter? Turn with me back to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Back to John chapter 1. This was Peter's first introduction to Jesus. We'll pick it up in verse 35 of John chapter 1. We read, again, the next day John, now this would be John the baptizer, John the Baptist. So again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which is translated a stone. In this very first encounter, Jesus revealed his plan to transform Simon into Peter. Jesus planned to take this man named Simon and transform him into a Cephas, or a Peter, a rock. And that is exactly what Jesus did over the next three years. You see, beloved, it's not what you are that's important. The issue is what you're willing to become by God's grace. Jesus can transform anyone if there's a willingness. We see that beautifully illustrated in the life of Simon Peter. So this was Peter's first introduction to Jesus. This is when Peter became acquainted with Jesus. At this point, he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah he didn't know he was the Son of God. He knew that his, his brother Andrew was convinced that this man was the Messiah. But we aren't told that Peter believed that yet. That seems to take place in the very next chapter, chapter 2. Because in John chapter 2, we read, On the third day there was a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. This, and here's John's commentary, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Now here we go. And his disciples believed in him. When Peter saw the glory of Jesus displayed in his miraculous power, he knew that this teacher was no mere man. He was the Messiah. Peter was convinced And you can't imagine how excited Peter would have been at this point in his life. As we saw in chapter 1, these men were waiting for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah, hoping for the Messiah, anticipating the Messiah, and now here he is. There's no way I can put into words how that would have stirred and thrilled Peter's soul. The Messiah is finally here But Peter's perception of the Messiah at this point was not completely accurate. He, like his fellow devout Jewish friends, assumed the Messiah would overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom that is described throughout Hebrew Scripture. And Peter was no doubt excited about the possibility that he would be one of the insiders. So he believed in Jesus at this point, but his understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do needed to be reshaped reformulated in the days ahead. So this was phase one of Peter's relationship with Jesus. We could say that it was Peter's call to salvation. Phase two was his call to service. Look with me at Matthew chapter four. Go back to the left to the very first gospel record, Matthew chapter four. This event that we're going to look at here in Matthew 4 took place about a year after the event which we just considered. So this is fast forward now, a year ahead. And we pick it up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. At this point, Peter and these other disciples were already believers. They had been believers for about a year. Otherwise, why do you just drop your vocation and follow a stranger, a total stranger? That's not what's going on here. Here, Jesus calls them to leave their nets leave their secular business to follow him exclusively. This is phase two of Peter's calling, a call to vocational service. Why did Jesus call Peter and the other disciples? Specifically, why? He chose them and called them for the purpose of training them. He gave them on-the-job training 
as they walked with him, heard him speak, heard him pray, felt his heartbeat. You know, it wasn't an easy job to train Peter and the other disciples. But that gives us hope that God can use us also. Basically, the Lord had to overcome four problems in Peter's life. And you could say the same thing for the other disciples in the lives of Peter and his men. Four problems. Number one, a lack of spiritual perception. You see, the disciples had a problem. They didn't understand what Jesus said. They couldn't understand spiritual truth. They didn't grasp what the Lord taught so often. And it's funny that whenever the Lord would ask them if they understood, they would say, yes, Lord. They were so thick they didn't even realize that they didn't understand. As an example, look at Matthew 16. Just turn over a few pages to the right. And keep in mind that this event in Matthew 16 is very late in the ministry of Jesus. So the disciples have been with Jesus for months, years by this point. Two to three years. And yet, notice what happens in chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus, even this late in his ministry, had to rebuke Peter for his lack of spiritual understanding. How did the Lord overcome this problem? How did the Lord deal with this problem? By constantly teaching his disciples over and over and over again. Jesus taught his disciples all the time. Even the night before his death, he took the time to teach them all the things recorded in the upper room discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Even after the resurrection, Jesus taught Peter and the other disciples for 40 days in his post-resurrection ministry, according to Acts 1. They needed constant instruction to overcome their lack of spiritual understanding. That was one of the problems Jesus had to overcome in Peter's life. A second one was pride. Pride was another problem Peter struggled with, like all of us. John 13 is a classic example. When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, you will remember that when he came to Peter, Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. That will never happen. And Jesus replied, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus rebuked Peter for his pride, and then he left a vivid illustration of humility when he washed the disciples' feet. A third problem that Jesus had to overcome in Peter's life was the problem of unbelief. You're in Matthew's gospel. Back up just a couple chapters to chapter 14. And notice just one story to illustrate the point. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, and when, they had sent, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The middle of the sea, and this isn't a sea like an ocean, this is the Sea of Galilee, it's a freshwater lake. 
But the middle of this body of water would be about three to four miles out, depending on how far north they were in the lake. But it didn't matter which way they decided to go from there because it was the same distance to the shore in all directions. Verse 24 says the wind was contrary to them. In other words, when they decided to try to row east, the wind would blow them west. And when they decided to go west, the wind would blow them east. The wind was contrary, so it was always shifting in against them. By the way, this was exactly the circumstance in which Jesus wanted them to be. Exactly. Jesus Jesus was such an unusual teacher. As I've said several times in the past, I don't think many of our college students here in our church would ever want to take a class from Jesus. He gave the test first, then the lesson. That's what he's doing right now. He's giving the test first, and after the test, he'll give them the lesson. Verse 25 says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch would be about 3 a.m. So it's pitch black. The sea is raging. The water is raging. The wind is contrary. And they are smack dab in the middle of this big lake. Verse 26 tells us, and when the, or verse 26 says, yeah, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus performed three different miracles on this occasion for the sake of the disciples. Number one, he walked on water. Number two, he had Peter walk on water. And some of you are say, hold it, don't go on to number three. Yeah, he had Peter walk on water, but Peter sank. That's true. But he walked a lot farther on water than you have ever walked on water. <laughs> and the story doesn't end by saying that they had, you know, once they got to the shore, they had to have this big funeral for Peter. No, Peter didn't drown. He got back to the boat either one of two ways. He either walked back on the water or Jesus carried him back. Either way isn't too bad. So first miracle, Jesus walked on water. Second miracle, he had Peter walk on water. Third miracle, Jesus calmed the storm. And Jesus did this to strengthen their faith. That's how Jesus dealt with their problem of doubt or unbelief. The fourth problem Jesus had to overcome in Peter's life and as well as the lives of the other disciples was a lack of commitment. You remember that Peter, on the night before Jesus died, Peter said he would die for the Lord. But you know the story. Peter didn't stand up for the Lord. He denied the Lord multiple times before the cock crowed. And I'll tell you something. That was almost a soul-destroying blow to Peter. It almost did him in. Look at Luke chapter 22. Turn from Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 22. Verse 31. Notice what Jesus said to Peter. 
Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, Satan has asked for you, Peter, so he can destroy you. So he can just chew you up and spit you out. Just just ruin you. And how did Jesus respond to that? Verse 32, but I have prayed for you. That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus prayed for Peter. He knew Peter was going to fail. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him multiple times. He knew Peter was going to be crushed by the crucifixion events. Jesus knew Peter was going to be devastated by his own failures. Matthew 26, 75 says that after Peter had denied the Lord on, on, an, on, on, this, in, on this occasion when Peter denied the Lord, there was a time when Jesus was being led out from his trials, and John captures it in a powerful way, as well as some of the other gospel writers. It's all of a sudden Jesus and Peter's eyes met. They met. And Matthew 26, 75 says Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus knew Peter was going to feel like such a failure that he would be tempted to just give up, quit, walk away, and never come back. So Jesus prayed for him. But Jesus also did something else. He appeared to Peter after the resurrection. He appeared to Peter personally and alone. It was a private conversation. We are not told what happened on that occasion. We are not told what was said. All we are told is that the event took place. Luke 24, 34 says this, and so does 1 Corinthians 15, 5. But even though we are not told what took place in that historic meeting, we are not told what was said between the two of them when Jesus appeared to Peter, we do know what came out of that meeting. We do know the impact it had in Peter's life. First of all, it transformed Peter's view of Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, Peter could not understand what was going on. This didn't fit. How could this happen to the Messiah? Did he fail? Was he defeated? I thought he was going to lead us in victory. Those were the thoughts running through Peter's mind. But when Jesus appeared to Peter after the resurrection, it changed everything. Peter realized that this had to happen to the Messiah. That this wasn't some kind of cosmic mistake or human mistake. This had to happen to the Messiah. Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Peter realized that Jesus didn't fail. He wasn't defeated. He was the victor, the conqueror, the Lord of life, the Lord of death, the resurrection, transformed Peter's view of Jesus. So much so that not very many days after this, Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and say to his fellow Jewish brethren, you killed your Messiah. You killed him. Peter was infused with strength and confidence as his view of Jesus was 
was rightly calibrated by the resurrection. The resurrection transformed Peter's view of Jesus. But I would add a second point. The resurrection also transformed Peter's view of himself. Peter realized he could be forgiven. Can you imagine? Think with me about this. Can you imagine how devastating it would be to sin grievously against your Lord only hours before his death and then to believe that because of his death, you could not make things right with him? You could not be forgiven by him in person and you could not be personally restored to him? Can you imagine what you would feel like? No, you cannot imagine. Nor can I. But that's how Peter felt. No wonder he went out and wept bitterly. But the resurrection transformed Peter's view of himself. It transformed Peter's view of his situation in life. When Jesus personally appeared to Peter, that changed everything. He knew he could be forgiven. He knew he could be restored to useful service to his Lord. And that is exactly the picture we see of him in the book of Acts. As I already mentioned in Acts 2, he preached to the Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost and thousands were converted. Thousands were saved as he preached a powerful and masterful sermon. In Acts 3, he healed the lame man. In Acts 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. In Acts 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. In Acts chapter 8, he dealt with Simon the magician. In Acts chapter 9, he raised Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 10, he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter became the man Jesus wanted him to be. He finally became a rock. He finally became a stone. And the resurrection was the catalyst for it all. So how about you this morning? Is the resurrection that meaningful to you personally? Personally. Has the resurrection transformed your view of Jesus? Do you see Him as the victor, the conqueror, the Lord of life, the Lord of death? Here's another question. Has the resurrection transformed your view of yourself? Do you see that you can be forgiven? Do you see that you can be changed into the man or the woman that God wants you to be as Peter was? Don't leave the resurrection of Jesus in the past as a mere historical event. See its life-transforming power and be changed today. You can be forgiven. You can be changed into what God wants you to be. You can be useful to the Lord in service and the resurrection is the foundation and the key for all of it. Personalize the resurrection. Personalize it. Don't look at it merely as a past historical event. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes here at the end of our service this morning, thinking about what 
you have seen from God's Word this morning and how the resurrection affected, impacted Peter personally, again, I want to encourage you to allow the same kind of thing to happen in your life. Allow the resurrection to impact you personally. Don't merely have it as a a sort of an event on the calendar that you commemorate once a year on Easter Sunday and then forget about it from that point on, never to think about it again throughout the rest of the year. No, don't do that with the resurrection. Personalize it. Allow it to transform your view of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He did, what He accomplished. And allow it to transform your view of yourself. You can be forgiven. No matter how heinous your sin, no matter how destructive your choices, if you will turn to Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Don't believe the lie that says what you've done is too horrific. It's too much. You can't be forgiven. Yes, you can. You can be forgiven. And you can be changed. You can be transformed into a man of God, a woman of God that the Lord wants you to be. And you can be useful to the Lord. You can be an instrument of grace to to touch other people's lives and minister to other people and impact other people. You can because of the resurrection if you will personalize it. So if you're here today and Easter for you is just a holiday on the calendar with no personal meaning, I can't encourage you strongly enough this very moment to personalize the resurrection by by calling out to Jesus Christ right now in the quietness of your heart. Saying, Lord Jesus, I see, I understand, I know that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, but I've just kind of kept that in the past as some historical event. It's never really meant anything to me personally. And I see that I need to respond personally by faith in you, Jesus. Now, you don't have to say it that way. You can say whatever is in your heart in your own words, but make sure you personally turn to Jesus Christ, receive him and his forgiveness and his salvation, and allow the resurrection to change you from this day forward. And Father, that is our prayer for every one of us gathered here this morning, that the truth of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, would be something that is personally transforming in our own lives. We especially pray that for anyone here this morning who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, personally as Lord and Savior. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take these marvelous truths and enlighten their minds, their eyes, their understanding with these marvelous truths and cause them to see how they're not only true, but how they are personally impacting in our lives. And may you be pleased to draw some man, some woman, some young person gathered here today to faith in Jesus Christ so that from this day forward, that man or woman would be able to truly call you Father. And we would also pray for those of us who do know your son, Jesus Christ, even as Peter did, and yet the the resurrection had such a profound impact in his life as a believer, convincing him that he could be forgiven, convincing him that he could be transformed and used by you for your purposes and in your service. So grip our hearts as believers with those same truths this morning with those same realities 
And may the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ be personally impacting in every one of our lives. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.